0: Okay, we're going to let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church, and as they uh, get on their way, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. We're looking at part 2 of our series called Building God's Church. Building God's Church. So 1 Peter, chapter 2 is where I'd like you to turn if you would. And uh, we're going to focus our attention on verses 4 and following. So First Peter 2. I think as we go through life, whether you know Jesus Christ or not, there are certainly times in all of our lives where we face circumstances that test the stability, strength, and staying power of our faith. Circumstances that cause us to waver, that cause us to wonder, even at times, where is God in this circumstance that I'm facing? We have a tendency to question His plan. Contrary to the opinion of some, God is not sitting in heaven seeking to make us unhappy. Sometimes in our questioning, I think it's kind of what we're saying, the question we're really asking, is God good? Because if God is good, would He allow me to face the circumstances, trials, and troubles that are in my life or in the lives of those around us? We need to remind ourselves that God is patient with us, that we are precious in His sight, that we are His children whom he has adopted into his family, and his children, whom he loves. We need to remember promises like Jeremiah twenty nine, eleven and twelve. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. His plans for you indicate that he is committed to your future. Romans eight, thirty-one and thirty-two, one of the most well known promises of Scripture. What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not with Him also graciously give us everything along with Him? Colossians 1.12. He, God, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. You don't have to earn His favor and love. He qualified you to participate in, to fellowship in, and to share the inheritance of the saints that are in the light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I think the clear indication of these texts is simply this. He is for us. He is for us. There are times we wonder about that we need to get back to the Word of God, claim the promises. Not only is He for us, but He has promised to give us good gifts. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Which is to say this, in respect to your life circumstances, God is not moody and fickle and questionable. Even though at times we would honestly have to say, I have questions, okay? And sometimes the assurance of God that comes to you from the word is simply this. I am for you. I am with you. I will not abandon you. I will not leave you alone. So no matter what circumstance you're facing this morning, my friends, I think the promise that I want us to focus on this morning is this. God is for us. He is on our side. I think if I said to you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is for you that He is committed to your success for His glory in and through your life? Do you believe that I think, I think if we're being honest here's I think what our answer would be most of the time I believe that, but there are times that I grapple with and I wrestle with what it means to take that promise and make it my own. God is for you, and I think The passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning places an an emphasis on this, this truth because the whole letter of 1 Peter is written to a church that is suffering. Peter will say to this church, Don't be surprised by the fiery trial that is about to test you, don't let it catch you off guard. Remind yourself in the midst of that trouble, of that testing of the goodness and promises of God. Remind yourself of the fact that in the midst of that struggle that God in His sovereign wisdom has allowed you to go through, He is for you. He is devoted to you. He is relentlessly committed to your security and safety for His glory until the day that He takes you home. But I think we need to be honest and say sometimes we wrestle with that. And this text I think offers us some simple suggestions that will help to reassure and resolidify the foundation of their lives that sometimes feels cracked, it seems cracked. It's not because it is a sure foundation. But there are times that our footing, it seems slippery. We don't seem well attached to the cornerstone that is Christ. And this morning, I want to, just from this text, give a few simple thoughts that I hope will strengthen your resolve and your commitment to cling to the truth that God is good in spite of how things look to me from my limited perspective. His intention, His purposes are kind, and they are good. So verses 4 through 6, 1 Peter chapter 2. The text says, as you come to Him. And I want to take the word you at the beginning of verse 4 and just simply ask this question. Who is Peter addressing? Who is the you in First Peter two and verse four? I think if you just go back up to verse three you'll find out who the you is okay It is those who have tasted that the Lord is good. It is those who have participated in the redeeming work of Christ that is made possible in first Peter chapter one verses eighteen and nineteen that you are redeemed and forgiven through or by the precious blood of Christ, which is the heaven-sent provision that frees us from our sin and transfers us into a new family called the family of God. The broader term that's used in Scripture, the family, is the church, which is the topic of this discussion. So, as you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones... Are being built into a spiritual house. And notice the word play here. The cornerstone is a living stone, and every believer is called a living stone that is being built into a spiritual house. So the topic of discussion is not physical structures. Physical structures are a metaphor that points to what we are in Christ and built upon Christ. We are built into a spiritual house or household or family to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God because of or through Jesus. For in Scripture it says, now he's going to appeal back to Old Testament to identify Jesus as the long-awaited and promised cornerstone. He's reaching back a thousand years into the book of Psalms and about 700 years into the book of Isaiah. Notice what he says as he quotes. Verse 6. For in the scripture it says, see, I lay in Zion, that Zion is the city of God, the place where his people live, a chosen and precious foundation or cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You understand where Peter's going? The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 7, now to you who believe, the stone is precious, precious reliable, a solid foundation that you can cling to, an anchor that is sure and steadfast and firm. But to those who do not believe, and folks, look, let's just be honest this morning, there may be some here who are investigating the claims of Jesus, and you may say this morning, Pastor Tim, I could not call myself a full-blown or true believer this morning. I'm a seeker, I'm someone who is longing to know Christ better and to get my arms around the promises of Christ more clearly. You need to understand what God says in this text. To those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the final statement of the work of God. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble Because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Okay, what's the first truth that emerges out of this portion of this text? I think the simple challenge to the church is this. Remember your solid foundation. When your mind rages with questions about the goodness of God, about the plan of God, about the purpose of God, about the wisdom of God, remember that He has established You upon a foundation that is tested and proven to be sure. Now, the identity of this foundation stone, I think clearly in the text, is Jesus Christ. He is the one that they have tasted and found him to be very good and satisfying in verse 3. He was discarded by men, but had ultimate acceptance with God. Okay, how did humanity discard Jesus? Okay. How is that discarding or lack of regard for Jesus exhibited when he came? Okay? Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, I think, answers that question. Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs that he did among you through him as you yourselves clearly know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, their responsibility, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Okay, how did the world, in general, respond to Jesus? Okay, the answer is simple. They rejected him as the foundation for life. And put him on the cross. What is the response of the father to his Son? Verse 24 says this of Acts 2. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Okay, the sure foundation of your life was laid when Father in heaven raised the Son of God from the grave and set him as the elect, precious, and cornerstone of the people of God. Okay, so the resurrection is the means by which God validated the place of Christ amongst the people of God. He is the sure foundation who has demonstrated victory over our worst fear, our worst enemy, death itself. And it is upon that foundation that God calls us to build our lives. Now, here's what I think is fascinating in this text. The cornerstone in the text is clearly Jesus. Chosen and precious, verse 6. Who is saying this? Who is saying this? Who's the author of 1 Peter? Okay, it's Peter. Okay, what is Peter saying? I'm not the foundation of the church. As is taught in some denominations. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. Peter just irrefutably points to Jesus as the trustworthy cornerstone. And here's the promise that he makes for us. Verse 6 quoting from the Old Testament. See, I am laying in the city of God, Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And here's the thought that I think is so encouraging. The one who trusts in Him, the one who believes in Him, who rests in Him, who lives for Him, will never be put to shame. So when I remember that Jesus Christ is the foundation of my life, what emerges from that faith and trust in Him is that I will never in Him be disappointed. Okay, and here's what He does when you place faith in Him, when you believe in Him. Verse 5 tells us, look what it says. You, like living stones, are quarried out of the pit of sin and are incorporated into this bigger work that God is doing called the church church. Of Jesus Christ. He excavates us out of. A place of sinfulness and dread and misery. And he begins to reshape us. As he quarries us. And then begins to chisel away. And he fits us into what he is doing. And I think what's powerful as a promise here is this. Verse 5 is saying. You are being built. Present tense. By God into a spiritual house or family. So the, the picture is. Mortar and stones. But the reality that it points to is that God is for you in your Christian life and has laid a solid foundation upon which He is going to build your future for the glory of His name. Folks, here's an encouraging thought. Remember the foundation because upon that foundation, God is building you. He is irrevocably committed to your success so strongly that the psalmist can say this, whoever trusts in this one that is coming, will never experience disappointment. They will never be put to some sort of ultimate shame if God is for us. Paul said, who can be against us? God is irrevocably committed. And I think verse 4 is interesting. In light of this, he says, as you, and, and, and it's just hard to capture this verb tense in the translation to English. It, it really could say something like this. As you keep coming to him, As you persistently come to Christ, what will you be assured of? You will be assured of the foundation of your life, that He is the chief cornerstone that you can trust for the rest of your life and in every circumstance that you face. The invitation of verse 4, I think, is this. It is an invitation to enjoy and to rest in this relationship where verse 5, God is forming you to be a suitable member of His community. And you know how he does it? He does it in response to your faith in Christ. And by the work of the Spirit, he is shaping us to become everything that he wants to do. God's primary work, therefore, is not structures and buildings. It is his people. It is his church that he is devoted to actively shaping. So here's the question for you this morning. What circumstances has God allowed to come into your life that are causing you to question His goodness, that are actually intended to shape you into the stone so that He He wants to put you into your perfect place in His house? You see, we resist the chisel of God, don't we? We resist the chisel of God. The work of the Spirit that is seeking to take away things from our life that distract us from our substantial trust in what he is doing. I think the result of realizing that we are God's primary work is confidence. He is building you to become everything that he wants you to be and he always finishes what he starts. So in your frustration, in your weakness, in your failure, remind yourself of this. Even though I may give up on myself, God will not give up on me. You can give up on yourself and try to step off the the track of the Christian life. You can try, but I'm going to tell you this. If you are a child of God, God's coming after you. He will not let you escape. The firm foundation in Christ is sure. If you have trusted him, you will never be put to shame, not even by your own doubts and fears. Or you may be temporarily And I'm sure all of us would say, you know, sometimes it's embarrassing how weak my trust in God can be. When I read a text like this, what do I find? You know what Peter's saying? Keep coming to Him. Keep enjoying your relationship with Him. Because in the next verse, verse 5, He is working to build you as a living stone into His house. Into His family. He is deeply committed. We sing the song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking. You know what Paul's saying? The foundation that God is building your life upon is a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the idea of the cornerstone simply is this. It is the stone that sets the straightness of the walls and the level of the courses of bricks that build the house of God. He is God's chosen and precious stone. He was rejected by men. He was discarded, but God chose him and raised Him from the dead, and set Him as the cornerstone, and has incorporated you by His grace into this work that He is seeking to build for His glory. My challenge to you is this. Remember your solid foundation in Christ. The second thought emerges from the very simple statement in verse 5. You are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You... Every believer, everyone who is trusted in Christ and has been incorporated into what he's doing. You are being built into a spiritual house. I think the second thought that starts to emerge from this text is this. I need to remember the solid foundation. Secondly, I need to maintain a sense of community. Think about bricks. Okay, think about bricks. My dad... The back corner of his property at home, every time I get down there and and drive down to the pond behind his house, there's a pile of bricks, weeds growing up between them. Guess what it is? It is, they are utterly unattractive. Okay, I've never looked at a brick and said, what a, now I'm not a mason, so I don't know, maybe a mason has looked at bricks and said, hey, they are, they're good bricks. But to be honest with you and say, never had that thought. If you take a brick, I have a brick laying in my flower bed in the front because one day I'm going to put it in that hole in in the step, okay, in front of my house. One day I'm going to do that. All right, that brick, nobody has ever come in the house and say, P.T., that is beautiful. All right, why? Because individual pieces don't amount to something glorious. But I'm going to tell you something. In the hands of a craftsman, a big pile of bricks can become something that is astonishing to be whole you know what God says here's what God says God says I am after saving you and shaping you into what I want you to be you're a living stone so there's always dynamics and change I'm going to continue to build you into this larger picture so that Christian we've come away saying it's not about me it's not purely about my success may God help us It's about the community. It's about what God is seeking to do through His church as a whole. Don't ever look at your Christian life independently. God doesn't look at you independently. He loves you independently, but He sees you as part of something bigger. He saved you to make you part of a bigger picture because ultimately life is not about you. Life is about the glory of God and the exaltation of God. And as He builds this house, and as you look at, A pile of bricks that becomes something wonderful and beautiful. The question in your mind is, who was the architect and builder of that house? Who put those bricks? You don't get enamored with individual bricks. It would be strange. What captures you, what calls questions forth from you, is who built that house? Who's doing that? That is beautiful, astonishing. And here's what I think is neat. That sense of community... And the joy of community and the encouragement of community is is only appropriately experienced or I would say maybe most deeply experienced when it is shared. Okay, when we talk about the creator, when we talk about the God who rescued us out of this quarry pit of despair and mire and he brought us out, he quarried us and made us a stone to fit into the house. Together, we enjoy what God is doing in our lives and we share in community The greater joy. Okay, I I thought, I have this illustration in my computer, but I don't have it in my notes. But I'll share this thought with you. I thought of this. Our joy in pleasurable things increases when we share them, doesn't it? Isn't it, when you have something good happen, something wonderful, a blessing, a gift that's given to you, and for me, good dessert, okay? Okay. I, you get excited about that, and I, here's my struggle, okay, in my flesh. And this happened to me Friday night. Uh, Mindy and Caitlin came over to play cards with Ruth and I, and they brought these desserts that were, what, the one thing was cheesecake covered in chocolate, okay? Now, that's not bad, okay? Semi-sweet chocolate covering cheesecake, okay? I, I was eating it, and they're like, oh, how is it? I'm like, oh, it's, it's actually, I'm sorry you asked, but it, it's really good. Now, here's the bottom line. If I shared it, what would happen? Okay? I would have less. No. I, I was, what I was thinking, but if you share it, guess what happens? In participating in that together, the joy and pleasure of that gift, it, it starts to spread, and it together it's more enjoyable. Okay? Especially if there was an unlimited quantity, it would be more enjoyable. Okay? That's the only struggle with you. That's why I didn't like the analogy, but the truth is that... And you, what you get around something, you honey, you gotta try this. This is so good. Kind of sometimes our flesh blocks that joy of sharing like that. But the truth is that when we share things in the context of community, there's a greater joy. And so it is in Christ. We are being built together into a house that God is building. And when we maintain and value the sense of community that is the family of God, that is the body of Christ, that He is shaping you into it and guarding and protecting for His glory, there is a greater joy in your Christian experience. Do you value God's design? Do you understand that solitary religion is ruled out out as an impossibility in the Christian community? Being a solitary believer is not a beautiful thing. What makes Christianity beautiful is when the parts of the body join together to do things for the glory of God or join together to grow for the glory of God. It's why I love the settings in my life where I have small group fellowships with some of my brothers in Christ. Because that sharing together, that aha moment when the light goes on about a truth in the book of Zechariah on Tuesday night is shared. And one of the brothers walked up to me in this morning and said, I've been thinking about this from Tuesday night. And we just celebrating what God is doing in our lives, sharing that. Do you, friend, this morning, do you value, do you maintain a high regard for Christian community? Because I can tell you this, God maintains a high regard for his community. I think in Zechariah, we're going to look at a passage that says, where God says to Israel, he says, I see you as the apple of my eye. I am actively protecting and guarding you. You see folks, that's, God wants us to realize that we are precious to Him and He has brought us together and together we can enjoy God more effectively. And so corporate worship becomes such a powerful thing. Because praising God together is a glorious experience for those that know Him personally. And I prayed this morning, if you don't know Him, if as you listen to the songs of praise to God, you may be saying, this seems odd to me. Here's why it seems odd to you. Because you don't know him personally. Because if you know him personally, you will find a a spontaneous desire. No one will have to tell you, you should sing when you're in church. You're going to say, no, that, that just happens. Why? Because you are being built together into a spiritual house. Now notice this. To offer spiritual sacrifices through the work of Christ so that all of us are saying we are coming to God together to offer this spontaneous desire to say oh that was good we're doing it by the spirit spiritual household and through Jesus so that as we come to father in heaven together how do we come we don't come reluctantly we come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may what, what? obtain help mercy in our times of need do you see the connection We are being built together to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. And when we come to Him through Jesus, what do we have? We have assurance that He's going to meet our needs. That's how we put to death doubt and fear and concern about the goodness of God through a Savior who rose and conquered the grave. I do not have a fear in my life that is stronger than my fear of death. And what Jesus is saying is, I was the stone that they rejected, but I am the stone that God raised to life. A living stone, not a dead stone, discarded, but a living stone placed as the cornerstone, the foundation stone that sets the pace for all that God is doing in our lives. Understand this, together. Okay? So value the sense of community. It just I, Is Bob Dietrich here? Bob, I, I'm surprised you're here this morning. I thought you were going to stay home. And grieve the loss of the Phillies last night. Because <laughs> I was watching on the computer. I, I don't have TV, so I was watching the live updates. Uh, and I am, we can commiserate after the service, okay, about our loss last night. Okay, so remember the foundation that God has placed you upon. It is his decision to place you in Christ, maintain a strong sense of community by god's design we serve him best together and where two or three are gathered in a meeting what does he say i am there in a way that i am not there when you're alone now i don't understand exactly what that means but i think it means something like this that when the people of god gather together he manifests himself in a way that is meant to enrich the body of christ and that is very very precious in community, we bear one another's burdens, and we need to ask ourselves, do I value what God values? God values Christian community. Okay, uh, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen... And by the way, I know there are so many other things that could be said from these verses, okay, just for the sake of time this morning. Verse 9, but you... Okay, now, I want you to see the contrast. Verse 7, you, to you who believe this stone is precious... middle of verse 7, but to those who do not believe, and then it goes down through verse 8 and talks about the judgment that awaits those who continue to reject Christ as the foundation of their life. Folks, here's why that's true. If you reject Christ as the foundation of your life, there is no alternative eternally. So in Acts 4.12, Peter will say a message that in our culture is very cutting. There is, there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby you must Be saved. And if you go back to verse 12, Acts 4, that's the one I just quoted. If you go back to verse 11, you know what it says? Jesus Christ is the chosen and precious cornerstone, quoting from Psalm 118. Okay, Peter reaches back a thousand years to say that this one that you all crucified, Acts 4, is the one that God chose. And there is no hope of salvation apart from Him. Let that message burn into your heart. Verse 9. But you, the church are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that, and understand this, okay, you are chosen by God. And I'll just give you real, real quickly, okay? You were chosen by God. I did not choose God. God chose me. I didn't hunt God down. God hunted me. John chapter 15, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, choose me. I chose you. Okay, So if you are in Christ, it is because God in some way came after you and you responded to His call. That's the opposite of rejecting the cornerstone. Okay, It is the idea that they believe in Him. Okay, He chose us. Secondly, He made us a priesthood. If you go back to verse 5, it says a holy priesthood. Verse 9, a royal priesthood. A kingdom of people that are different from from the world around them that's the idea a holy priesthood the word holy you can say means something like this to be set apart from the world and its system to be different than the majority of people to be willing to stand against the tide that's the idea of the text okay a royal priesthood the purpose of a priest is to go to god and to bring others to god if i can just summarize it in the smallest way a priest has permission and access to go to God. And the priest goes to God and brings others to God. You see, that's our job as the church. To go to God and to recommend that others come to Him and trust in Him. So, the third thought that I want to kind of emphasize flowing out of these verses is this. The church needs to pursue her primary purpose. What is her primary purpose? Her primary purpose is praising and glorifying God. I probably surprised some of you when I said that, because some of you are thinking, what? The church's primary purpose is what? What's the first thought that comes to most of our minds? Do you have a different thought than praise? Okay, what is it? Okay. All right, the thought that comes to mind is evangelism. Okay, to make Jesus known. Okay, but here's what I want you to understand. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that the primary purpose of the church is to bring praise to God. That's what a priest does. A priest doesn't go away from God. A priest goes to God and brings people to God. Okay, so our job is to come before God and our purpose as priest is to give acceptable sacrifices to God. Verse 9, okay, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people, and I love this thought, a people belonging to God, literally something like this, people that are included in his family. People that are included in his family. Because verse 10 says this, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, you were deserving of judgment. Now your judgment has been removed. You have received mercy. You see, how do you respond to that? Okay? We sing the, the song that is kind of captures the thought of the end of verse 9. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His glorious light. And the light is obviously a reference to the person of Christ and to the presence of God in the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament tabernacle. He brought you out of groping in darkness, looking for truth, looking for purpose in life. And He brought you into marvelous light. And what do you say? I can see. I can see things like I never saw them before. I can see the purpose and plan of God and the purpose of my life manifested more clearly. Our primary purpose as Christians is praise. That is declaring the supreme worth of God to the world around us. He does the first half of verse 9, So that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous, glorious Folks, you know what you need to do? You need to reflect on your salvation more and more. You need to reflect upon it until welling up within your heart is a song of praise, gratitude, and glory, and honor to God. Isn't that exactly what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 40? He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited asking Him. He inclined to me, and He heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. That rock that he's talking about is clearly a reference to Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He made my footsteps firm. He took away the doubt that was plaguing my life. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Folks, do you understand that glorifying God is the best means of evangelism that I have and that you have? why the psalmist says, he put a new song in my mouth. Many will see it and fear and trust in the Lord. You know why the psalmist was happy? God took him out of uncertainty and placed him on a solid foundation. And he could never stop praising God for that transformation, bringing him from graping in darkness to knowing I am secure in Jesus. Do you know that truth in your life? Are we fulfilling our? primary purpose which is praise of God's patient love which is the distinctive feature of biblical Christianity. Folks, I don't know if you know this but if you've ever studied world religions you will find that praise is the distinctive feature of biblical Christianity. You know what the distinctive feature of religion is? Fear. Fear. You will not find songs of adoration and praise to God in world religions. They're they're not there. Praise and love for God is the distinctive feature and highlight of biblical Christianity. Now, here's my conviction. If biblical Christianity is true, there's going to be something about it that will set it apart from everything else. You know how we understand the love of God? And you know why we praise God? Because of Jesus who was put on a cross and crucified for our sin to pay the price that we owed. He takes away what we owe. That's mercy. And he gives us a firm foundation in Jesus Christ, righteousness by his shed blood. And he places us on a firm rock. It just changes your life completely. You know what a person should do if they've had that kind of experience in their life? They should be a person who cannot help but proclaiming the glory, glorious and marvelous grace of God. And when you do that, it'll lead you to the last truth that is present in this text. Okay, the last truth is this, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you. So, in light of what I've been talking about, about the firm foundation that God has placed you on, about the family, the community that has placed you in, about the primary purpose that those have experienced being brought out of darkness, brought into light, placed on a firm foundation, they should be known as people who give praise to God. And when they do... Something glorious is going to happen through their lives. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you. And this is the same word for the Holy Spirit, paracleo. I come alongside of you and I entreat you as aliens and strangers. That is, as people who understand that they are not permanent residents here. I urge you, live such good lives among the pagans. And the pagans simply This. They are unbelievers that are spoken about. Just work up through the text. Those who rejected the cornerstone of Christ. Live such good lives. Such stellar lives. That though they accuse you of rolling doing. They may see your good deeds. And glorify God. On the day that he visits us. Focus on the primary task of the church okay and I think that's the last thoughts. what's the primary task of the church the primary task of the church is evangelism primary purpose of the church glorify God in all things one of the main ways that we glorify God is starting to take an out review to the world around us an out review that says I want them to know what I know I want them to know the assurance that I am experiencing in the midst of my struggle and difficulty <clears throat> how do we do that I just he, he gives us four ways number one Live a clean life. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from sinful desires. Abstain constantly because they were against you constantly. That's the most literal translation of verse 11 I can give you. Secondly, leave no room for accusation. Live in such a way that no one will believe the accusation that has come against you. Do you understand what I mean by that? live such a clean and holy life that when someone says so-and-so did this, they will say, I find that hard to believe. You see? In other words, people, if you don't know this, you live an observed life. Okay? If you have gone on record as being a child of God, a Christian, people are watching your life. Okay? They are observing it. And they're observing it to see if what you believe is real, if it has really made a difference in your life. Because I believe that we live in a world that is longing for the truth and often fails to see it. Because it is often hard to tell the difference between Christians and the general population. Because we have become good at being moral chameleons. We are good at blending in. And Peter is saying, live as aliens and strangers. There should be not a weirdness about Christians, but there should be a differentness about Christians. Why? They have been affected by the grace of God. They are part of a larger community that is holy and pure, that offers spiritual sacrifices to God. So the way we make a difference is we guard our lives so that they can be free from accusation. We do good deeds amongst unbelievers. The second half of verse 12. Find a way to care for and to serve those around you. Find small ways. When there are little incidents in your neighborhood, my wife is so good at this, Taking a dinner up to the, to the little grocery store in our town or to the, the person from another country that works at the gas station or loaning a car to the neighbor. Find ways to actively do good deeds so that when they see your good deeds, what's going to happen? They're going to say there is something distinct and different about you. And when they pose that question to you, it's there that God, because of your praiseworthy life, will open up an opportunity for you to fulfill the primary task of the church. And that is declaring the goodness of God. You see, most people don't want to listen to you until they know you. And once they know you, they want to know that you're real and genuine. And Peter's conclusion in this verse, I think is so powerful. Live such good lives so that one day, end of verse 12, they may watch your good deeds and Be moved by what you do and glorify God on the day when He comes. Folks, understand this. One day God is coming. He comes as a judge or He comes as a Savior. Acts 17. There are people in your life that need to know the truth about Christ. They need to know it first through your life and then through the word of the gospel proclaimed boldly and clearly to them without fear. That Proclamation needs to come from someone who is living their life on a solid foundation, who understands the value of Christian community, who understands that their primary task in life is to give praise to God as part of that community. And when they do, and when they live a praiseworthy life, that will find themselves fulfilling the task of the church, which is making Jesus Christ known to the people around you and to the nations of the world. May God help us to commit to these, and these are just very simple Values that God wants us to commit to. In conclusion, I just say this. Remember, God is for you in your struggle. Remember, he is for you and it will convert your life perspective. Remember, he is irrevocably committed to your progress and success. Remember your amazing position in Christ. He is building you, you, okay? And I can say this, and me into this work that he is committed and devoted to. And remember that there is a world out there that needs to know the truth. They are watching your life. Will you live in such a way that you make the gospel of Jesus compelling, believable, and desirable? Will you do that? And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. The end of verse 8 is a haunting Word, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. If I reject Christ as my Savior and as my hope, there is no other hope. Sometimes people say, Well, Pastor Tim, what are you saying by that? Here's what I'm saying, and this is the hard truth. If I know Christ, I'm incorporated into the people of God and I have access to him one day forever. If I reject Christ, I'm destined for eternity, separated from God in a place called hell. Now, you say, Pastor Tim, do you like that truth? No, I don't like it. But I believe we ought to have the courage to proclaim it. That God, through Christ, wants to make an eternal difference in your life. If you've never trusted him. Never just come to him and say, God, today I realize that Jesus is the cornerstone. I have lived rejecting him or evaluating him or testing him, but never believing. I would beg of you this day, if you have never trusted him, to reject him is eternally fatal. To receive him brings everlasting joy. Because he will forgive you of your sin. He will rescue you from the religion of fear thinking you have to appease the God, get God on your side by doing enough good, he will allow you to realize that he is the one who wants to call you out of darkness through his shed blood into the marvelous light. He wants to make you his child and start to incorporate you into what he is doing. And as we as Christians understand what he has done in our life, he is going to so gloriously remind us that he is for us. He is for us. Let's bow our heads together. Father,